into my throat it is not wait, wait. Fun. so your face is like liquefying and draining uh-huh. down your throat my brains and my face are dissolute and that like is this awesome. is the hardest place to start to try to connect to today's guest <laughs> no it's not hard at all so one of the the things that i'm really interested in talking to michael gervin at ucsb right SB, Santa Barbara, University of California, Santa Barbara, who is one of the PIs on the longstanding Chamani project. The uh, founder, co-founder. With Hilly Kaplan, right? Mm -hmm. Studying the Chamani, who are an indigenous forager population in Bolivia, about whom they have written a wonderful public health piece on how to protect indigenous populations from COVID-19. I'd seen this, it came out in the Lancet a week or two ago, and I've seen it circulating and, and reading it firsthand. One, it's it's a wonderful model for how to ethically approach our indigenous or any population who suffer in terms of health disparities and, mm-hmm. and resource inequities. But the other thing that caught my attention relative to the conversation we're having is their predisposition for respiratory mm. infections that makes them even more at risk for COVID-19 mm-hmm. than and, other populations. And then a, a massive lack of infrastructure to then handle if they do end up experiencing a, you know, a massive crush of COVID-19 in the population. Like you can't just get ventilators real quick. This is one of those like big overarching interviews that we get to do with folks who've been in the field for a while and have had a big impact on human biology. And we've talked about the Chamani how many times now? I mean... <laughs> more, more times than I can count because yeah. that project has been so fruitful, hopefully for the Chamani, because yeah. it's certainly been fruitful for anthropology and training mm-hmm. students and grad students and postdocs. And so it's going to be really nice to get kind of an historical perspective as well as how such a big impactful project started and then, you know, how it's evolved to maintain its relevance and then doing exactly what the, what you were just starting with of, you know, how to deal with current global crises and still maintain an active field site and protect the people that you work with so closely. So I mean, the public health response for the Chamani was sooner, it was like early March. That was yeah. before the United States did anything. Oh, man. <laughs> now, we don't have to get all political on, on why that is, because we, we have very strong opinions that we, <laughs> we share widely. I think we're preaching to the choir a bit yeah. if we start railing against that. But just it just is so impressive. It is such, you know, I read mm-hmm. in the article, I was just really struck by the how elaborate and thoughtful and forward-facing mm-hmm. it was. You know, we we just turned in a commentary for AJHB talking about science communication, but part of it, because we didn't actually do this work, we just noted <laughs> people like George Armelagos at mm-hmm. all, a long line of Armelagos students and others have long predicted and pointed out the resurgence and the reemergence and emergence of infectious disease as a huge 
epidemiological transition or problem. So mm -hmm. yeah, none of this is any surprise. So it, it's both then surprising and sad at how poor big countries like the U.S. are at dealing with it, but then very impressive at how quick this team has been in addressing yeah. it for the Chamani. It is one of those things of <laughs> we need to get more human biologists out there, as we say in our commentary, to actually start talking about these things to the folks who need it. And then it also makes me want to like put a call out there to get human biologists and anthropologists to run for office. But like, that also sounds horrible. Just the act of running for office because you need these informed, broad perspectives of how humans interact with one another and with their environment to be able to make these informed policy decisions that we had really hoped would have been enacted, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic and not in the middle of it. Which is one of the hardest things with science is having that immediate and direct mm -hmm. impact. In a clear way that is accessible to all, which I think is one of our yeah. biggest issues, is we love our jargon and we love talking to, you know, the choir because they agree with us. We need to start getting out of that. And there's also often a lag. So I'm also, not only am I impressed with how quick they got out there and right? set this up, but how quickly this, this piece was published. I know. I was actually going to say that when you were first talking about it and then we moved on to something else of just like, damn, pulling that together so quickly is incredibly impressive. But I mean, what else would you expect from the Chimani Life History Project? I, I mean, they're incredibly productive and I think they are incredibly, I don't want to use the word sensitive, but at least attuned to what this work means and the impact it has both locally and globally. So yeah, no, it's a great project. Well, I think that's sort of the model for, for why a longitudinal study in an established field site with a participatory action approach with your committee of elders is a great model for conducting research. Yeah. And I think the hardest part about most people setting up research projects is we all want to be where they are, but you have to have started 20 years ago. or Right. It takes you have a, forever. And, you know, that's the thing I'm, I'm, of course, dealing with on a regular basis of just developing that international field site and making sure the trust is there. Michael, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for taking time out of your day to uh, chat with us. Of course, sure, thanks. You have the distinct honor of being our last interview before a two-month vacation. Oh, all right. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm glad, because if we just bragged for you about how quickly the public health response has been for the Chimani Project and that Lancet piece came out and then waited three months to interview about it, it would look really bad. That's, that's true, the timing. Cool, so this is like season finale, like is there going to be a big cliffhanger at the end? If you well, want there depends. to be, you totally can. You could leave a cliffhanger. <laughs> our production team will have to figure that out for us. We just, we just need a few months off so we can get our writing done. Oh my god. All right. Yeah, yeah this will be so our first break. I don't know if you Kara have met, but you and I haven't met, and I've been reading about your work for years and years and years. So I'm Chris, and it's great to meet you, and yeah, then also great, great to, to have you on the show. So, all right, thanks. Yeah, great to meet both of you. Yeah, I don't think I met Kara in person. In person. Yeah. I'm sure we've no. passed one another regularly at conferences, but never an actual "Hey, how you doing?" handshake kind of thing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so we like to start our, our almost every interview in almost the exact same way, and that's trying to 
get to know you a little bit and how you decided to get into the field of anthropology. So kind of your origin story. So yeah, how did it come about? Wow, let's <laughs> see. So I'm a city boy from Philadelphia and I actually was in university at Penn State studying physics hmm. of all things. Kind of that idea that, you know, on the back of a napkin, you could have all the, you know, summarized the equations of the universe. Then, you know, when I looked around me, basically all my good friends that were in physics were all kind of dropping like flies, like, and not, not like in good ways. Like right. it, it, was, it was a tough time. And also I think I wasn't smart enough to put those equations on the back of a napkin, <laughs> let alone just the daily reality. I was like, wow, this is not really fun mm-hmm. or that interesting. Uh-oh, what do I do now? How far along was, did you get into physics, like into the program? Yeah, I was like two and a half, three years. Oh, like, so most so, of your undergrad career then, like a majority. Yeah, you know, and it was one of those things I had a physics scholarship. And, and so like, oh, if I, if I drop it, how am I going to pay for school? But you know, I ended up taking this class on biocultural evolution hmm. and, and it was team taught by a biological anthropologist, Jeffrey Kurland, and a linguistic anthropologist, hmm. Warren Morrill. And we read Jared Diamond's Third Chimpanzee. Uh, it was like my first introduction to human sociobiology or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And it was just like, huh, that's interesting. And so that kind of got me thinking along the lines of, well, I wasn't really thinking professionally as a career, but it was just being in the right place at the right time, I guess, because I had so much physics classes and math. I was like, there was a time where I was an English major. Was it English and math? Something like that. And I was trying to get into creative writing. I was going to be a great novelist. (laughs) You know, all of those things, right? And, And I think I got kicked out of a class because they found out I hadn't taken the prereqs or something. It was just something <laughs> stupid. And I got so angry. I just like, ah, you'll see. Uh, I'm going to drop out. But yeah, I had so many math courses that I kind of just did that as a major. And then when I was interested in anthropology, someone said, oh, you should talk to this guy, Henry Harpending. His name was kind of uh, a bit more controversial now, but at the time, he was a natural kind of, oh, you're doing math? What the hell is that have to do with anthropology? And so it was a nice kind of introduction. And, and I actually started doing some population genetics kind of stuff. But that was also this weird thing where I, I, I kind of felt like a fraud. I barely knew what a gene was. I hadn't taken a single biology class. And Harpending was like, don't worry about that. This is all you need to be a good anthropologist. And he gave me some like dime store novel called like Bloodsport. No relation to the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. And he's like, this is all you need to know about being a good anthropologist. I was like, all right. Okay, I don't need to know what a gene is, I guess. So anyway, yeah, I graduated and and didn't really know what I was going to do. And had gotten interested enough in anthropology that I figured I'd at least kind of try it out. I was actually working at a, doing sidewall build construction for Morgan trucks mm-hmm. <laughs> and applying for graduate school. And I ended up, I was interested in the big questions. It seemed exciting. 
and I, I visited. And less interesting than construction? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I was terrible in construction, but I, I didn't really think that was going to be a, a career move for me, but it just kind of gave up on some of the, certainly the physics stuff and the anth anthropology just, there was so, it was so open. It was so open. And, and to be honest, I was not like I was very strategic about it. I visited New Mexico and for coming from the city in Philadelphia and just, I don't think I ever noticed the sky before I went to New Mexico. <laughs> yeah, the sky is so big. And then I was just a bit naive, but you know, I went on, so I was going to work with Kim Hill. He took me on a hike his wife at the time, Magdalena Hurtado. I think they planned this, but I don't know for sure. I never asked them, but like for some reason, Magdalena got lost. And then, but they had like GPS units and walkie talkies. And, and then they started doing these Ache calls to find each other. And I was just like, whoa, this is cool. <laughs> like, they're navigating the wilderness. We're in the Badlands, like the, the Malpai area, like just west of the city, which, was unearthly to begin with. So mm -hmm. I don't think I'd ever been on a hike <laughs> before I went there. And then it's like, wow, Ache calls, tracking. Yeah, this is cool. <laughs> you can get paid, you can make a living out of this. Yeah. So that was my entrance in to, to anthropology. That's pretty cool. I, I had a student in my lab as an undergrad who went off to work with them and he, he was not a city boy. He came from a hunting background, but I think they did something similar with him where they they were just like yeah we like to do these things he's like oh, i like to do these things it's almost like a rite yeah. of passage into grad school if you can survive the journey into the wilderness and then all the interesting things that they do to get you back out and not go crazy you can be a student <laughs> yeah no i i yeah i mean well New mexico is such such a otherworldly place that i had never been to the southwest before mm -hmm. and so if nothing else it was just like wow this is just a really interesting change of scenery, change of lifestyle and everything. And then at the same time, it's like, oh, you can go to grad school. And and I know I probably shouldn't say this, but you know, I was lucky to to get one of those NSF graduate fellowships. So my thinking was like, I'm not gonna lose I'm not gonna make money, but I won't lose money. Yeah. And that's kind of why I went to graduate school. I probably would not have gone to graduate school if I didn't have the fellowship because certainly at new mexico at the time you know the nickname was the university of no money there was no automatic <laughs> grad students were not paid to go to grad school yeah. in anthropology uh, so unless you had some extra money it was not really an option i like that story we just talked to athena um, Actipus. Actipus, and, yeah. and lee cronk right and i was a student of lee's for all of a month but it was similar type of stumble I, I was stumbling forward my father was a bricklayer so i worked with him a lot and it gave me a lot of time to think about what i didn't want to be doing <laughs> yeah and then thinking like oh you know i might do this academic thing and i just kind of stumbled forward into whichever program accepted me and i probably had read trevor's work not lee's but i was steered into lee's lab and sort of fell into mm -hmm. appreciation for evolutionary signaling theory like all serendipitous yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we may have to acknowledge our white maleness as part of what allowed us to fall forward and up, but still possible to do those things. Yeah. So that's then quite a, a backstory to setting up what Karen and I think is probably one of the best longitudinal 
research projects going right now for both, as we were saying, and we'd like to hear from this, like helping a foraging population who are buffeted in a, uh, by globalization, but also training a shit ton of grad students and postdocs along the way whose legacies are tied to yours. So how did that come about? Yeah, so yeah, I know I, I sent you guys that evolutionary anthropology paper that kind of, I loved writing it because it was an opportunity to actually reflect on you know, the big picture and everything. And, and it makes it look a hell of a lot more organized than it <laughs> ever was, right? Certainly going into this, never set out to do all of that. You know, had I done that, I might have given up from the outset. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a monster, right? It, I mean, it, it's, it keeps growing. Yeah, but, you know, it started off much more humbly. And so I, I did my dissertation work with the Ache, and I was focused on social behavior. You know, how do people deal with the day-to-day -day risk of, you know, food shortfalls and sickness and injuries? So it was really about cooperation and risk buffering. But it had an obvious kind of nice tie-in to, you know, bigger issues about life history and about health. And after doing work in Paraguay, I was just traveling around South America a little bit and ended up in Bolivia. So, the, you know, the other landlocked country there. And I just really liked the country. People are very friendly. And there was like everywhere you looked, there was just lots of opportunities, just like can't overemphasize exploration where you don't actually have any questions in your brain yet, just to kind of see what's out there and explore, you know, was really valuable. And I realized that there were all these different groups in Bolivia that would be really interesting and exciting to explore. The idea at the time, right, was that you, you kind of had to explore off on your own and do your own thing. And so I guess it never really was in my head that I was going to continue working with the Ache uh, just because it was so, Ache was so closely linked with, with Kim Hill and Magdalena Hurtado and, and it was a small population. There weren't like that many people and it's like, hasn't everything been studied with the Ache already? And so it was just exploring around and finding a, a, a place. And the thing that was interesting about the Chimane was that it was a large population. So, you know, at the time, the idea was that maybe there was like 60 villages, like 8,000 people. And, and I was interested back then about kind of these bigger ideas about, you know, why do we live, you know, so, such long lives? And maybe we need to look at what older people are actually doing with their time to kind of mm. think about some of these evolutionary models of lifespan. And so, you know, if you're working with a group like the Hadza, you know, the Hadza is kind of great for certain reasons, but how many people are there even alive over the age of 60? But it wasn't, you know, super carefully thought out, you know, to be honest. It just sort of fell into place. Bolivia also is very friendly, open to people working there, which makes it, like Brazil actually has some of the most, the largest number of uncontacted populations, hmm. but it's very difficult politically, legally to kind of work there, let alone, ethically, you know, uncontacted populations, probably the first priority would not be to do some of the kinds of anthropological questions that, that you know, I set out to do. And so, yeah, it was kind of finding this population and then trying, just going there, visiting, 
And to be honest, I had no idea what the heck I was doing. Barely spoke Spanish, actually, much less Chimane. How is your Spanish in Chimane now? Oh, yeah. So my Spanish is decent. And there was, there was a time where my Chimane was better than my Spanish. Hmm. Well, that's just because my Spanish was so bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not that my Chimane was really good. My Chimane is conversational. It's gotten worse because I don't speak it as much, where sure. obviously I, I still use Spanish a lot. Yeah. And so, yeah, to be honest, there was just so much opportunity in going there and visiting and so many villages and people were friendly and open. And yeah, it just seemed really exciting. And then and how the project kind of started out of that. Yeah. How did it start? So I was, that was my last year of graduate school. And I just kept finding excuses to go back down there to kind of scout different villages and and whatnot. And, and it was kind of a scary time because again, had I planned this out, I think I've done all the things you're not supposed to do, right? Like starting a new project, finishing up. And then, then I was kind of like a new professor. And the idea that like you're starting up a whole new project, that's going to have all this time Mm. to build. And then like I spent a, a whole year in the field from the university's perspective, I hadn't published anything, right? Like mm-hmm. it didn't matter you were investing in this big project because right. that's down the road and who knows what could come of it. But yeah, you know, once I, I was able to get Hilly Kaplan on board and at the time there were a couple of graduate students who were looking for dissertation projects. And, and so was, was able to get a group of people kind of all starting out but, you know, a couple of years later, once, you know, I scouted some villages, it was like, oh, this would be great. Uh, we can have a couple anthropology graduate students in this village and that village. And at the same time, wow, wouldn't it be awesome to actually just have like physicians? Now, certainly when I went around different villages and tried to, what do people want and need in these communities? You know, invariably they all mentioned, you know, healthcare. We don't have any way of getting access to, to any healthcare. People are sick. You know, there's, there's some recent measles epidemics that people talked about like in the not too distant past. And so what do I know about medicine? You know, I had the wrong doctor. <laughs> right. Agree. And so part of it was just like, all right, well, we'll take care of that need by we'll hire physicians. And then after came the whole idea, like, you know what, these physicians can actually collect data too. <laughs> and wouldn't that be better than just an anthropologist? How many times did you cough last week? Uh, and then thank you. Uh, then move on to the next person. Well, we can actually collect some decent health data, actually do some primary care. It was actually interesting. In the initial days starting out, when we were trying to get funding, ironically, it was hard to get money from Anthro, NSF, Mm -hmm. because they kept pushing back with the, how can you be studying health at the same time that you're influencing health? And I was like, are you serious? Really? Anthropologists are going to push back and expect us not to actually help out in a way. And so, you know, we had different levels, you know, we'd have some doctors going like every month versus once a year versus not at all. So we could actually measure our effect and, and life and death was not exactly the outcome we were looking at at the time anyway. And so it was arguable. It was almost like how influential do you think we're going to be on the health Mm -hmm. of the population to think that like, Oh, we're going to ruin everything as soon as we set foot, but they didn't like it. They kept rejecting it. And the funny thing was that then the first time we sent it to NIH, you'd think if anyone, they would have a problem with the prime directive. It never even came up. Interesting. They were totally fine with it. And it was like, 
way more money than NSF was ever going to provide. And then it's like, since then, never turned back, never went back to NSF. Huh. Now, I don't think that issue maybe might come up today, but I, I think just, it would. I think it all depends on which group of reviewers you end up with. I think it would. I still hear the same pushback. Like, they want you to do pure science. They don't want you to do anything applied. Because you're not working with actual people, right? So yeah. there's something that you've kind of hinted at a few times that I want to really shine a light on. So a lot of our listeners we know are graduate students and early career folks and, you know, just those kind of interested. And you said right at the beginning of, had you known you were going to be developing this huge monstrous project in the beginning, you might not have done it. And establishing an international field site that's enduring is incredibly difficult. And this is something that my work in Finland, it took three years of developing relationships before getting a single data collection point. And it felt like it was gonna fall apart every moment until the moment it did not. And so because early career folks listen to this, I was wondering if you maybe have any advice or just you know persistence might be the, the way to go on working with international populations and developing these kinds of field sites. and. For the moment, let's set aside the COVID-19 since nobody is going out and doing anything, but just kind of in general, what would you say to yeah. students and early career folks attempting to do these kinds of things? Yeah, well, the one thing I guess I would say is that even if there's the hope that some new project might have the potential for kind of long-term payoff, thinking smaller, in other words, like, is there a product or something you could actually accomplish in the short term. The whole idea of longitudinal study for a dissertation mm -hmm. can be complicated and, and, you know, as it is, it takes a long time to get a PhD, but, you know, there often might very well be the chance of, you know, a cross-sectional study for your dissertation and you're laying the groundwork potentially for further long-term study. And so, you know, if you can think about different timescales of your own productivity, you know, I think that can be uh, certainly a, a good way to go. You know, the other thing, you know, that I hear about sometimes is, you know, students will ask me, should I join some project? Mm -hmm. we've, we've, now we've produced enough students that like someone will be like, oh, I'll be another one of these Chimani researchers. <laughs> and yeah, there might be some places that will judge you that way. But I think of it in terms of, you know, what can you actually accomplish? You're going to go out to some other population and set everything up by yourself just to have some independent identity when what you're actually going to be able to accomplish scientifically, there's no doubt. It's going to have to be less because you don't even have a census. You don't have any demography. You don't have that kinship. You don't have trust. You don't have the buy-in, let alone all the existing data that you can build on and you could do so much better science. And I think really, you know, employers out there, will judge you by the science, mm. not are you just another Chimane person or not. And, you know, in some ways, yes, field populations are important and who you work with is important. But, you know, you're also being judged by the topic. You know, are you making purchase in a particular area, a particular set of questions? And if you can accomplish that better in a great place like the Chimane, that's great. You know, the reality, and I understand this, no one really cares about the Chimane or one particular group or another group. And, and certainly outside of anthropology, no one really cares about those details. And so I think the bigger question is, you know, where can you actually make a difference in terms of the science? And so that 
students, graduate students, if they have that possibility of getting that buy-in uh, and then doing it as a group. It's way, way more scary to start whether a project in Finland or anywhere by yourself mm-hmm. versus if you have some buy-in with other people, let alone if you're collaborating, you know, there's so much more possibilities. So, yeah. That reminds me All of good advice. This something that we just recently interviewed Zanita Thayer as well. And she was talking about how her research is very question driven. And then it's going yeah. out and trying to find where to get those answers and where to get that data. And, and that harkens back to exactly what she just said. So that's a really wonderful thing to emphasize again, that be question driven, be science driven, and there will be opportunities for you to answer those. And the other thing too, is you see the finished product after decades and, <laughs> and like, in fact, one of my postdocs now is, you know, involved in setting up work on, in Malaysia. And yeah, if you just look at the Chimane project now or the Shuar project or Hadza, that you got to see that process and, you know, and maybe like revealing all the blunders and all the other, mm-hmm. not like it all happened all at once. And probably a better way to go is actually focus, you know, starting with one question and then other questions, you know, you can add on to it, but you can't collect data on everything all at once and get anything worthwhile with substance. You know, it's just too much. Uh, And the more the merrier. I do think when people go into graduate school, you know, sometimes you think about, you know, oh, who's my advisor that I'm going to work with? Mm -hmm. But it's also paying attention to who's around you. Who is your cohort? Who else might come in with you? Because those are the people that you can collaborate with, you know, joint data collection, joint projects in different areas. That's, you know, as important, if not more sometimes than just the advisor that you might have. That's actually a, a really wonderful piece of advice and one that I work to instill in my lab is getting students working together and to find the people that you work with well and just continue working with them on whatever it is you do. Karen and I's research interests are kind of not aligned at all, but we, <laughs> we've managed to, to collaborate a lot. So it's a good model. And what you're saying is beautiful, given our, our focus here on how the sausage of the science is made, right? We're interested in the messiness along the way without going into detail, but I want to drill down on on one of the things that you said, which is that nobody outside of anthropology really cares about the group you're working with. Nobody outside of anthropology really cares about the Chimani. And what is really fascinating from what you just said about using NIH money to hire doctors for them, and then also this public health piece, is the real impact that this project does maybe seem to be having for them, to benefit them. So tell us a little bit about that public health piece first, because I'm shocked at how quickly you guys got on the ground to talk to them and to get an actionable plan together. Right. So, well, basically, so we have ongoing work all the time. So even if, you know, Hilly and I are here, uh, we have a, like a roving team that is just always visiting villages and and that's been going on for for a long time and so you know around mid-march actually we actually had two of our bolivian physicians were here in the u.s getting training we've been involved with some work on looking at dementia and alzheimer's disease we don't actually know anything about dementia or alzheimer's disease and in these kinds of populations and these types of conditions and so kind of anything that we could learn would be really interesting and relevant. And there's good reasons to think that maybe things could be worse there or maybe things could be better. 
anyway, you look at it, there's, there's a lot to learn. And so some physicians were here uh, and it was right when, you know, the shit was starting to hit the fan a little bit and they were worried that they wouldn't be able to get back to Bolivia. And so they left a little early. And then just thinking about our team, the first thing was actually like, how do we keep everyone employed and feeling a little bit helpless because things were further advanced here. Like there wasn't even like hardly any cases, I think even in, in Bolivia yet there. And so feeling helpless here, it was like, well, let's put our attention to, to Bolivia. And, you know, what are, are folks even talking about it as being a threat? And you know, some of the Chimani who worked with us for a long time are now in the government, in the Chimani mm -hmm. government. One person in particular is like the, the health representative, the health minister in the Chimani government. And talking to him, it just became clear that people really weren't that aware about what was going on and hadn't really been thinking about it all that much. And so we were just trying to have those conversations and think about just education and getting the word out. And even in this case, it wasn't like we had this concrete plan laid out from the beginning. And given that so much of our identity, even there in Bolivia, is just Chimani healthcare. Mm -hmm. We did kind of assume that once COVID hits Bolivia, the resources there, you know, the clinics, the, the hospitals, they're going to be completely overwhelmed. There's no way they're going to be able to help with, you know, Chimani living in remote areas. And so, yeah, that was where we kind of just got organized our personnel together and tried to have meetings and talk with not just the Chimani kind of tribal leadership, but local government folks, you know, people in the hospital, the director, and, and just trying to bring all the relevant stakeholders together and think, you know, concretely, is there an, an actual plan that we can come together with? And I think, you know, at that time, there were a couple news stories, because there was one case of a teenage boy in Brazil, a Yanomamo boy that had COVID-19 and, and had died. And the worry was that it came from gold miners. So there was a number of stories, like very, you know, understandably, the, the potential alarm, like given the past history, it's like, oh my God, here's the potential for another, you know, indigenous genocide in the Amazon, indigenous populations. And, but what I hadn't seen in any of those kinds of news articles was, what are people doing? I think people need a little bit of guidance. Is there some concrete plans? And so it wasn't like we even set out to write up anything. It was just, we were just kind of tailoring what we could do in Bolivia in light of the new circumstances. But since we had skeleton of a plan, I, the idea, we just thought maybe let's just write it down and circulate it and then maybe others will find it useful. And so we wrote out what we had done and then tried to adapt it as a template. But also at the same time, it was a delicate dance because all those news articles emphasize, you know, the vulnerability of indigenous populations. And so it's like, on one level, that's true, but we also don't want to contribute to this narrative that, you know, every time you see indigenous populations, it's linked to vulnerability mm. and higher risk, that there's lots of characteristics of indigenous populations that make them very resilient. And in some ways, they've, you know, they live low population density kind of settings or living outdoors. You know, the Chimani at least have the ability to say, you know what, we can close our borders and live off the land. You know, a lot of people don't have that option. So they don't have that trade-off of, you know, it's the economy or it's our lives. Yeah. Uh, the economy is their lives. That was interesting. So they're able to raise their own food and you provided them salt and 
Oh, so. And so, that's right. But you did mention that they're at higher risk for respiratory infections. Why yeah. is that? Yeah, right. So on, for a number of fronts, there's been a big history of tuberculosis. There's mm-hmm. kind of lower tract respiratory infections, bronchitis. One thing that we didn't actually quite realize, you know, I would have guessed maybe 8%, 9%, you know, had maybe tuberculosis or active tuberculosis at any given time. But interestingly, when we did, as part of a study for heart disease, where we had thoracic kind of CT scans, some of our radiologists were like, do you realize almost every single person in these scans has evidence of scarring in their lungs Hmm. from presumably from tuberculosis and and other types of infections? And so, yeah, the respiratory ailments is, is a serious source of morbidity. So yeah, the Chimani don't have as much, you know, the diabetes and the obesity and the kinds of comorbidities that we've heard about that might make us more vulnerable. But the respiratory, even in the absence of, you know, widespread smoking and things like that, the respiratory comorbidity is certainly the big concern. And, you know, we didn't explore it that much, but certainly people are more potentially more immune compromised. It's hard to know. Right. There's so much uncertainty and that, you know, we, we pitched it in a way, though, because we're also trying to garner more attention. Sure. So it wasn't like, oh, well, but, you know, the Chimani have, you know, helminthic infections and maybe that affects their immune systems in such a way that maybe they wouldn't have these cytokine storms. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Maybe, right. but that's so speculative that why even raise that issue at this point? If anything, we just need to get more people involved. Everyone's in a state of need. Yeah. And so there's a bit of a competition of, for attention, for need, for money, for resources. I think it was well framed and, and it was well played in that regard. And this is a time of limited resources and we need savvy politicians. The people who are able to get supplies to people and be constructive and proactive are the people we really want to be advocating. Right, right. And Kristen made a, a point as well earlier in the introduction that you all were able to get this response and plan in place for the Chimani and, and other groups before the U.S. federal government was able to respond oh. to COVID-19. And that again also was the like, yeah, we need to have more anthropologists maybe in charge of things. So I want to circle back to, again, something you said previously is that nobody cares about, you know, the Chimani outside of anthropology and maybe even a small group with an anthropology. But you and Dan Lieberman just recently, or it will be coming out, it's in press, I believe, a piece talking about the importance of diversifying our samples in different studies. And this, of course, brings right in with your work with the Chimani of why should we, and I always have to look at the full acronym because I can never remember it, uh, why should we not just look at weird or Western educated, industrialized, and rich democratic populations and start including other populations like the Chimani in these sort of health, physiological, and sociological uh, studies? So yeah, that, that was a really fun paper to write because the it's actually written for the 10th anniversary issue of the weird people paper that the weird people john henrik and colleagues well, i know it's like god that old now that like papers that i think of as oh that was like a couple of years ago right are yeah. now classics and but also and, and 10 have, years does not make it classic i'm not okay with well yeah being classic <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Maybe running out of ideas, you know, because the original Weird People paper was slanted towards psychology. Yeah. And, and I said, you know, the same exact argument could be made in terms of health and 
disease, mm -hmm. physiology. It's kind of an odd audience because I actually, it's much better pitched actually towards the medical hmm. audience, not so much. Making it relevant outside of anthro. That's exactly what we want. Well, yeah, exactly no, right. Yeah. Evolution and, Medicine and, and Public Health would have been a good journal for that. Yeah. Well, it's maybe not too late to kind of pitch a, a version of it somewhere else. Um, and yeah, because I do think it's important. And even NIH, you know, is raising these kinds of issues, these questions. They had a, a meeting, one of these expert meetings, and it was all about, you know, should we be venturing beyond weird societies for you know, thinking about, and this was like social processes related to aging. But again, the fact that it was even on the radar. Right. And I do think, you know, certainly certain chronic diseases like, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's, you know, nothing's working. And so I think people are just desperate, like anything. I mean, yeah. NIH is giving money for Alzheimer's work, uh, not only like f existing researchers that aren't experts in Alzheimer's, but even people who've never even thought of that much about Alzheimer's, but coming from outside the box. Let's see, you know, if new ideas can be generated, new populations. And so that's why, you know, the main take of that paper, just the whole idea that obviously if, if a larger goal out there is just improve everyone's health, right? Let's reduce health disparities. Then just by ethical reasons alone, you'd think, well, maybe you should study the health of everyone in the world and across a broad range of different conditions if you want to tailor the needs to those people. It's so obvious, like, does that even need to be said? And that's why, you know, while I do say that in that paper, our take was a little bit more for the self-interested, like, why should I, as an American taxpayer, care about my tax money going to study folks traipsing around the jungles of Bolivia? Yeah. And, you know, and that's not just your taxpayer, but NIH reviewers and, yeah. you know, and the journals. And so the soundbite maybe from that paper was that from the top three medical journals, you know, if you come from a weird country, you were like 40 times more likely to be a study participant than if you were coming from a non-weird country. And first of all, we do believe, right, that, you know, our millennium goals and sustainability goals that we care about the, the health needs of everyone in the world. But even if we were just selfishly interested in our own health, doing something a little bit different, you know, there might be some value to it. Maybe, so maybe tying together the goals of the Chamani Life History Project oh. and then the goals of studying non-weird populations. Well, so I had to think about this so much just on a practical sense of how can I convince funders to give me money to do stuff that, you know, would seem a bit odd. And, you know, and on so many levels. And, and I do think, are there some take home stories that, you know, had we not done some studies in non-weird contexts, that we would have been wrong about Can some you, understanding of how the, the body works. What's an example? Health. And even something as simple like inflammation, right, as being, you know, such an important killer. And, you know, the biomedical world tends to operate on risk factors and prediction and, but, you know, if risk factors operate differently under different conditions or with different people under different circumstances, might that not be interesting to know? And I do think that that's the case. Some of our work on heart disease showing you know, that Chimani had very minimal heart disease. You know, and, and I think if, if the story was just like, well, yeah, okay, that's not that surprising or 
what do we learn from that? Uh, if you eat well, I guess, if you are physically active, you know, don't we know all that already? Maybe, well, first of all, they eat a lot of meat. So maybe some people might think that, you know, how is that possible they don't have heart disease? But, you know, there are interesting other aspects that are not necessarily on the table. And, and that's where at least bringing in some of the thinking about pathogens and potentially protective aspects of certain pathogens is not something that's really on the table in the standard biomedical field, but it could be. And yeah. we're starting to see a little bit of that entering. And we never would have known that or really explored that had we not ventured outside the kind of standard types of populations that we typically work with. We got a little bit of this when we talked to Barry Bogan, who, who was making the case, you know, that American biomedicine associates stunting and malnutrition, and that if you look outside of the, the box, you know, you, you don't see that that, that association is, is inaccurate. There are way more factors and variables and variation in all of that. We also so got this I, with I, Amy Anderson, too, who was part of Chimani, yeah. working with data that was already collected. That's right. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you had any pushback. Um, so the, the other side of this is, as an American going down there, has anyone told you to stay in your lane? That you're interested in your own stuff. Why don't you study yourselves and, and not come and muck around with us? Did you get any of that? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, as one Bolivian physician said, he's like, isn't that interesting? You're spending all this money to try to study things that people don't have. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, study things we do have. And it's like, well, yes, of course. But in order to get the money to study things you have, you got to look, you know, what, what's the angle? You know, and, that, and that's kind of a practical standpoint. People are not dying of heart attacks and right. But certainly, even since the time I've been there, you know, diabetes risk has increased. A couple of people died of diabetes. It has, it's not really well managed. And so, you know, certainly there might be some transitions. But never really got that much pushback because in many ways, it's a source of pride. You know, when, when the heart disease stuff came up, because again, this, this sort of dialogue, this discourse where people are used to being, you know, thought of as, inferior to kind of the dominant population. So even in, in Bolivia, in the local area, there's, there's a sense of pride of indigenous pride, but at the same time, the indigenous people are not very well treated, especially in, the, in this area of the country. And so it was a source of pride, like all around you, including in Bolivia, right, in the cities, you know, you see obesity, diabetes, and heart disease, and and here, look, on the news, they're saying, Sanjay Gupta is saying that, you know, your heart, some of the strongest hearts in the world. So it was actually a real source of pride. Yeah. And, you know, the Shemani say, oh, well, that's because, you know, we take care of our kids. We don't throw our older adults and, you know, in old age homes and, and all this kind of stuff. So it was great, actually. It was, so from the Shemani side, we've never really had any kind of pushback on, mm. on that front. And, and especially because, well, and this is the, the other issue, too, of that, you know, the initial kind of idea of having doctors and combining some healthcare was rooted in just like, how could you work in an area where there's lots of needs and not contribute something And that, you know, science, you know, sure, it could lead to contributions down the road, but if there's not some immediate short-term payoff to people, you know, can you 
ethically, can you sleep well at night? <laughs> and so that healthcare aspect was always part of it. I didn't realize it until later, of course, that you know that's a large part of the reason why we're able to develop that kind of trust. Because a lot of people calm down quickly and then make some quick promises to come back, and you know maybe they never do. That role that you've played there is a nice place to wrap, right? So, <laughs> what are you going to go do for fun now? So you know we try to get outside. And luckily, you know we live in a place where it's not so population dense that you can. You know, there's mountains nearby and there's plenty of opportunity to kind of go on a little hike. But, uh, before we wrap, are you also looking for graduate students or postdocs? Uh, are you looking for anyone to join your lab for future projects? Yeah, yeah. Always kind of interested in, in good students and some postdocs too. <laughs> I have one postdoc leaving. What's the best way for people to learn more about your work or get in touch with you? So one good thing is that I don't think there are like any Gervins out there in the world, except for this one like 16 year old skater. Uh, I don't know what happened to him. We were neck and neck on the Google Wars. and I, but, So a website, I think gervin.anth.ucsb.edu. Right. Uh, but yeah, I have all the information there. I try to put enough information for interested students and my contact info. So people can get in touch. Awesome. Well, Michael, thank you so, so much. I know we had such issues like scheduling this because life went crazy for, yeah. for so long. So we really do appreciate you taking the time to be on the Sausage of Science. Yeah, long yeah, last. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It was a lot of fun. Good. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Sausage of Science with Chris and Kara. I'm one of the associate producers, Teresa Gilner. This show would not be possible without the support of the American Journal of Human Biology and the Human Biology Association. Be sure to check out the most recent issue of the American Journal of Human Biology and stay posted for our weekly podcast episodes. Please like us, rate us, share us, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.